Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever been out walking in nature and you decided to veer off the path for some reason? Maybe you saw something interesting uh, way off there in the distance. You wanted to go check it out only to immediately discover to your own humiliation how difficult it is to walk through uncleared terrain. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've definitely had this experience before. And that's not even getting into, uh, you know, issues of uh, ticks and other parasites. Oh, yeah. There's there's the tick problem, definitely. Uh, but, it, like, unless you're somebody with a particular class of outdoor hobbies or lines of work, you would probably be so embarrassed to realize how much of your life you spend on pre-selected traversable pathways, <laughs> like the floor of your house or workplace, the sidewalk to the door, the sidewalk down the road, the road itself. Even when you go out in nature, it's really likely that you probably spend most of your time out there following some kind of forged or trodden pathway. And if you get off the path, Planet Earth almost immediately transforms into this unruly and difficult place with uneven footing and branches and rocks and vegetation blocking your path, sudden drop-offs, steep inclines. This is Earth, and this is what a large part of the surface of planet Earth is like, and much of it is just not made to be quickly and easily traveled over. It's funny how even if you go out and spend a decent amount of time in nature, you can mostly overlook this fact just by staying on the path. So that's what we wanted to look at today, something we don't often even think of as a human invention, but in a way certainly is the roads we travel. That's right. It's a, it, it's really an essential part of the world that we have created. Yeah. Um, but however, if we, if we want to understand the human history of roads and even get into the, the pre-human history of roads, we have to acknowledge uh, – the work of our uh, of our non-human relatives, uh, the work of animals, uh, because because an we do have animal paths to consider. The trails left by say deer in the forest, uh, the buffalo roads across the western plains of North America. Animals on the move from one area to another uh, had to push aside vegetation, and in the act of moving, they they end up trampling down the earth beneath their weight. And we're talking about a lot of weight when we're considering wide-ranging megafauna. Uh, you know, some of which we still have today, but we had even more of in prehistoric. Times. Yeah, I guess before there were the, the cattle roads, we had the oryx roads or something. Yeah. And of course, when other animals came along in their wake, uh, these paths were there and they often represented the swiftest, least, least obstructed way to get from one place to another. Yeah, it's certainly interesting to think about uh, animal trails as being a type of geomodification or uh, mm -hmm. adaptation of the landscape itself to the organism. Now, a lot of the ways that organisms survive are by adapting to the landscape around them. But sometimes they survive by changing the landscape to better suit them. And they don't necessarily do this consciously. It's just their activities bring this about. The, the big examples are things like beaver dams. Yeah, beaver dams is, is just altering the immediate environment or or even looking to megafauna that uh, such as an elephant that may push, push down trees and other vegetation. Yeah, but of course we can see paths emerging that in some ways play some of the same roles. Yeah. Now, I do, I do want to uh, drive home here, though, that even though animal trails are, uh, are often brought up as being sort of the pre-human origin uh, of roads and human pathways and certainly seem to play a role in them, uh, there are some who take issue with, uh, with giving animal trails too much importance, arguing that, well, animals don't actually follow consistent paths all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, you know, a, a definite uh, connection here. Uh, but it is one that is pointed out in a lot of the literature. 
And speaking of the literature, uh, one of the books that we look to for this uh, episode is a, a book by the title of Ways of the World, A History of the World's Roads and of the Vehicles that Used Them by Maxwell Gordon Lay, uh, an Australian civil engineer. Uh, published in 1992. In the book, uh, Lay says that, you know, on this whole issue of animal pests, it really depends on the environment. He says, quote, difficult terrain or dense uh, vegetation in fertile areas would certainly have required narrow and specific animal ways. So even if, yeah, you can say that, uh, you know, animals aren't going to always follow consistent paths. There are going to be environments where there is like one best way to get from point A to point B if point A to point B is indeed a path that needs to be navigated by animals. One way to see an analogy here is if you ever look at the uh, the desire paths that form along a college campus oh. or, or a courtyard of a well-populated building or something. Do you ever see these at college, Robert, where there would be like paved pathways but then branching off in a shortcut between two places, there would be a place where the grass was just beaten down and there was dusty dirt. Oh, yeah. It's generally, it's kind of a, a breakdown in planning because yeah. like clearly you did not uh, plan out the best paved uh, uh, route for uh, for foot uh, traffic. Clearly foot traffic wants to go this way. But it's kind of beautiful watching those things emerge because nobody planned it that way, just as you're saying. Even the students didn't plan it that way. Just over time, enough people make the same decision about where to go and how to get there. There, that these natural pathways emerge. Yeah, until someone throws up a hedge or something. Yeah. So uh, eventually you have uh, a few species of hominids that come along and they distinguish themselves in intelligence. And they start forging their own trails, uh, often incorporating animal trails uh, whenever it makes sense as well. So yeah, if the, the trail of the megafauna uh, is there, they may use it, but they may also uh, beat down their own paths as well. So, you know, they would have navigated, uh, in, by doing this, they would have navigated difficult terrain, bodies of water. And uh, prior to the coming of Europeans to, um, to the Americas, uh, the native uh, peoples here, had, they had their own complex system of foot trails by which they could travel the land. In his book, uh, uh, Lay points out uh, the Natchez Trace, a uh, 440-mile uh, or 710-kilometer uh, trail that goes from uh, Natchez, Mississippi to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And it was used by native peoples for centuries. And it was said to have, uh, you know, been originally created by buffalo heading north to Salt Licks in uh, the area of what is now Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, and this highlights something you might not immediately think about with roads because roads not only allow you to move more easily by providing a clear path and a surface that's easy to walk on, they also help you know where you're going. And this could even be the case for animals, right? Many animals have inbuilt navigation capabilities that others don't. As a large bipedal primate, just try to find your way around in the world without a compass or a map or a road. You're probably going to have kind of a hard time of it. And you can also consider the fact that even if you're not following a familiar road to get somewhere specific, you can follow any any road to eventually get somewhere significant. Like people don't usually build roads to nowhere and that applies to animals as well. Now, in considering lands that have known the influence of humans for far longer than the Americas, it has also been theorized that some of the, the older winding roads in places like uh, England have their roots in wild animal pathways leading to fords and watering holes. 
And of course, in the, the case of uh, many of these ancient trails, uh, they might remain somewhat fluid for a number of reasons, uh, because you have shifting waterways, trees are going to fall, beavers are going to do their thing, storms are going to uh, add chaos as the scenario. So uh, any number of things might uh, occur that, uh, that, that alter the shape of the path. And of course, additional changes would come as humans uh, uh, continue to develop their, uh, their, their, their primitive technologies, right? They require more paths for their own meager footfalls. Uh, the cultivation of crops and animal hus husbandry uh, would have increasingly created a world where certain areas had to remain off limits to animals, uh, particularly uh, to domesticated animals, mm -hmm. and other zones uh, or you know, roads would uh, need to easily and safely convey these creatures from one place to another. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue along the road. All right, we're back. Now, obviously, there is no single inventor of roads, so we can't point to uh, uh, Dr. Rogulus who came up with <laughs> roads 10,000 years ago. Didn't happen. Sir Walter Rhodes. Uh, no, uh, you know, we've already discussed how the, the footpaths of early humans likely made use of animal paths to some degree. But then what happens, again, when humans transition out of their mere hunter-gatherer lifestyle? What happens in the wake of the agricultural revolution, resulting in such innovations as domesticated animals? And then eventually... Uh, wheel and sledge constructions for dragging surplus crops, firewood, and other necessities around. Now, once you introduce the idea of wheeled vehicles, things change significantly. And it's worth noting as an aside that the strange and fascinating fact that it appears the wheel was not invented for transportation until sometime around the fourth millennium BCE, like 3500 BCE or something, uh, which it first first exposure to this fact seems shockingly late, right? Yeah. Grain agriculture has probably existed since around 9 to 10,000 BCE, which means that roughly half the time humans have been farming, nobody had wheeled vehicles to move sacks of grain or whatever around. So, of course, maybe we shouldn't be surprised given that wheels are a deeply unnatural invention, right? So many human inventions have some kind of analogy in nature. Uh, while there are animals that roll their bodies or parts of their bodies in various ways, maybe the closest is the bacterial flagella, which nobody could have seen in right. antiquity. Right, the, the microscope to see, uh, see some of the more wheel-like uh, creatures in the animal kingdom. But even that's not really a wheel. There's just nothing in nature that operates on a wheel and axle, and we should definitely revisit the invention of the wheel oh, in the yes, future. Oh, yeah, that's a no-brainer. We have to come back to that. But so, yeah, think about this. Just thousands of years of agriculture and road, in some way road-based transport, at least some primitive forms of roads, without wheeled vehicles on them. Yeah. Now, on the subject of uh, domesticated herd, you might well require a dependable road to connect winter and summer grazing lands. And indeed, we see examples of this in the uh, Canadas Reales in Spain. Uh, these are drover's roads covering some 125,000 kilometers. Uh, another example are the, the uh, Welsh roads of England that linked Scot Scotland and Wales to London markets. Again, just moving domesticated animals from one place to another. Yeah, roads are necessary for the development of trade and in many ways y you could say for the development of culture. I mean almost everything that we think of – in culture comes ultimately from the connections of peoples to each other, you know, the meeting of different minds across distance, and that's all enabled by roads and trade. 
Yeah, and even though a lot of these, you know, roads change over time, obviously, and and you don't find a lot of paths that remain in use for just extended periods of time, uh, but you do see these wonderful examples of some of these pathways, particularly uh, in uh, North America and Britain, where just they have centuries of, of wear and tear, and they've essentially become little trenches mm-hmm. uh, just from all of the, of the foot traffic, and, and that is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, though the Roman roads were dug out to begin with, I believe, or at least some of them were, right? Like they would dig down a trench in a way to become the road. Oh, yeah. And that's where we're getting in really into uh, the serious construction of roads. And ultimately, that's what we need to talk about at this point is when, when you start constructing a road, it's not merely, well, we sure did move those goats from, from, from here to there enough times that there's a, a best way to do that. Uh, no, what, what happens when we get into the, the idea of, of planning a road, manufacturing it, reinforcing it, carrying and maintaining it? Well, when we start asking that question, well, Lay says that, quote, uh, the creation of major lowland ways required a degree of engineering skill and organization that began to develop around 4000 BCE. He points out that the oldish British, quote, planned and engineered pathways date back to Glastonbury, UK, 33,000 BCE. And uh, good local roads uh, ultimately helped uh, the Britons defeat the Roman legions in 55 BCE. Now, of course, on the other hand, extensive high-quality roads are a major factor in the military success of the Roman Republic and then the Roman Empire. Right, or really any uh, uh, any particular empire. I think back to episodes of uh, of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that you and I did on uh, the Inca yeah. and the importance of the, the Inca uh, road system, uh, which also incorporated uh, uh, tremendously uh, uh, impressive rope bridges yeah. uh, and how that contributed to the, uh, the success of the Inca. Yeah, a great part of the power of the Inca Empire lay in its transportation and communication infrastructure. Yeah, and if you want to con- quickly convey your troops from one point in an empire or a kingdom to another, um, especially ac- across difficult terrain in order to defend or expand a kingdom, um, you're going to need good roads. And indeed, we see this reflected even in, in recent history, say the United States interstate system. Uh, in the early 20th century, it was considered necessary for national defense. Yeah, definitely. And there are multiple reasons that roads are necessary for for military purposes. I mean, one, of course, is to get your armies to places. That's mm-hmm. the obvious one. But the other one is the thing that a lot of times people, you know, when they're, when you're playing your historical uh, military games, like the, ooh, would Julius Caesar's army defeat the Mongols or mm-hmm. something like that? You know, you, you're, you're doing all that stuff. People like to think about commanders and weapons and fighting styles and all that, but they don't think enough about the real thing that makes or breaks a war campaign, which is supply lines. Right. The ultimate gremlin of military history. The army marches on its belly, right? Yeah, and under supply army can't fight at full strength. And so the supply lines, how you get food and other major supplies to your troops, how you bring reinforcements to the front, I guess that all falls under the military category of logistics, but that's a huge part of the success of a military campaign. Now, it's easy for us to get caught up in the, you know, these sort of country roads. We've been talking a lot about a lot of cross-country paths and roads. Uh-huh. But uh, as, as Lay points out in his book, um, you know, going back to, to ancient times, uh, you see roads as a necessity of city planning. As cities become a thing, 
uh, for for human beings, it becomes necessary to think about how people are moving around in them, what sort of, of, of streets or roads are present. And you see this in the work of the ancient Egyptians and various Middle and Near Eastern civilizations. Uh, the use of roads in city plannings was discussed in the, the writings of, uh, for instance, Greek city planner uh, Hippodamus in, uh, in later reference in the works of Aristotle and others. And sometimes city plans were based more uh, on engineering. And other times there was a there was some uh, element of mysticism as well, which seems seems like it would be highly uh, susceptible to mysticism. The construction of roads because it is this kind of complex uh, like system of unlanguage that you're laying uh, out across the world. Roads appear in all kinds of myths and legends and religiously significant stories. Oh, the yeah. road to Damascus, the road to Emmaus, the ro- uh, little red riding hood on the road to her grandmother's house. Yeah, how many um, horror stories throughout history uh, are essentially stories about what happens when you go off of the path or the road, right? Right. Yeah. Mirkwood and the Hobbit. Yeah. If they stick to the road, gentlemen, and you're not going to encounter problems, don't go chasing elf uh, lights into the dark. Now, of course, we'd be remiss if we did mention one of the great roads, the Silk Road, uh, an example of roads running into other roads uh, to become uh, more or less a single pathway, dating back to roughly 300 BCE, con- connecting various caravan routes uh, up across Eurasia. One of the all-time greats. All-time Silk great roads. Road. Yeah, top, top, top five, top three, to be sure. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. All right, we're back. Okay, now one thing that certainly changes about roads over time is that the original roads were just beaten down areas of earth, right? They're mm-hmm. where, the, they where the cattle or the large bovids or whatever would push through. They'd trample down the ground and make it flat and they'd push the vegetation aside so there'd be a clear pathway going somewhere. But over time, roads took on a more technological character. People were looking for better ways to make more reliable roads because you got a road like that that's maybe just some trampled down cleared earth. Uh, uh, maybe let's say you have some heavy rains. What you tend to find is that the road like that gets a little bit washed out and erodes. Yeah, I mean, in a, in in our own neighborhoods uh, here in Atlanta, we we have at least a few examples of this where you have an unofficial pathway. Mm-hmm. And then what happens when it becomes a muddy wreck? And then you see some very amateur, essentially road building, where people are like, "Well, I'll just dump a bunch of rocks in here, or I have some tire garbage." That'll really help things out. Yes, and I will it, fix the path with uh, with a whole bunch of cans or something. <laughs> yeah, and it essentially this is kind of what we see in some of the the early um, uh, corduroy roads or log roads uh, that are that are created to deal with muddy terrain. Or, oh, they're better than cans. I mean, I guess, yes, yeah. <laughs> but but essentially we're talking about placing logs perpendicular to the direction of the road. And examples of this sort uh, sort of road date back at least four thousand years. Uh, there's the so-called post-track in Somerset Levels, England, for instance. Uh, and it, it makes sense, right? Like, what, what do you do if your, your vehicle is stuck in the mud, right? Uh, just grind and grind in the mud no, until you, you're buried. You get you get some sticks or law, you know, yeah. whatever pieces of wood, and you put them under the the tire. Yeah, you want something to pull up on some traction. Yeah, yeah. you want to put something under the tire that will stay where it is when you're driving. Yeah, so that is essentially what uh, you know the the, the post track is. Uh, Lay mentions another one. He says the sweet track uses longitudinal logs to support oblique crossed pegs, which form a V. 
uh, every meter or so. Planks between the Vs create a walking path. Hmm. Uh, and this is the, the sweet path uh, from near Glastonbury, which dates back to uh, uh, 3,300 B.C. Now, Robert, when did people first uh, come up with the idea of the old, the old popper, the gravel road? Ah, you know, I was I was thinking about this, and I was reading around in uh, in Lay's book and uh, looking at a couple other sources on this, and um, yeah, it's one of these things that that feels like it should be pretty archaic because again, yeah. we come back to that idea: what do you do when the path gets muddy? Well, one solution is get some rocks and throw them on there, right? Right. Yeah. And that that clearly seems to have been something that would have been utilized by by our our, our ancient ancestors. But uh, but when you start really thinking about gravel roads, it gets pretty interesting. Uh, you, we, we can really take the technology and the labor involved for granted. Mm-hmm. For example, I was recently in Costa Rica. Okay. And we went up to Monteverde in the, the, the cloud forests. And to get to Monteverde, uh, you have to take this, this winding road. And more and more of it is paved now. But there's still a stretch that is gravel. And and these are, these are good gravel roads. I don't want to... Uh, cast any unnecessary shade on uh, the roads of Costa Rica because, uh, uh, I, you know, we, ne- we never felt uh, in danger or anything. You know, these are these are nice gravel roads. Uh, that, I mean, hey, I've been on some scary gravel roads in Georgia. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and if I'm being honest, like gravel roads in general, like tend to, to wig me out, but probably unnecessarily so. But yeah, think think about about what essentially a, a gravel road is. Instead of lining the road with wood, you cover it with dirt or rocks or gravel, uh, taken from uh, well, in today's cases, some sort of quarried area, right? Uh, but more likely, in older examples, you'd be talking about rocks from a creek bed. The problem, of course, is that gravel can be washed away, and then the, you have you have this huge task of hauling it all the gravel back up, and then distributing it uh, where it needs to go. And this can be quite intensive. Uh, I mean, just look at modern cases. Uh, if you see any kind of maintenance going on, or you know, if you happen to get to see the the creation of a gravel road, you're going to see the hauling and distribution via you know massive pieces of equipment, dump trucks, and what have you. Uh, and perhaps this is a major reason you tend to see more widespread use of gravel roads in, say, early 20th century uh, U.S. and uh, 20th century developing areas and nations as well, because it simply becomes cheaper to transport and dump all the necessary gravel, which is, of course, again, now mined and transported on dependable roadways rather than <laughs> just uh, laboriously transported from stream beds to uh, you know roadways that might be questionable uh, in their own right. Yeah, the age of the dump truck made it possible. Yeah. So think about that the next time you're on a gravel road. Realize that this is perhaps more of a, a modern uh, uh, conveyance than you're giving, uh, giving it credit for. Now, of course, when we talk about like the, the best, the, the, the most modern examples of, of a road, you're going to think of paved roads, right? These are the gold oh, standard. I thought you were going to say a rainbow road. No, but I guess a rainbow road would probably be paved as well because a gravel rainbow road would just become distorted from all of the traffic. <laughs> that would be really difficult to maintain. And yet, here's the thing, as modern as these feel, as, even though this feels like the height of modernity, these actually go back quite a long ways uh, in human history as well. Uh-huh. So you have stone-paved roads that date back to, for instance, the Middle Eastern city of Ur, uh, circa uh, 4000 BCE. You have brick-paved roads in India that date back to 3000 BCE. And we also see them in Malta uh, from around 2000 to uh, 1500 BCE. 
Basically, as humans developed and improved the ability to cut stones and mix mortar, they crafted not only walls, but roads. Because ultimately, what is what is a road but a kind of wall that is laid on the ground, right? The technology <laughs> is not all that different. Yeah, okay. And, but then there was also, I mean, the development of um, – what would you call it, the supporting infrastructure around the road. If you look at, say, some of the stone-paved Roman roads, you'll see that they not only had this paved surface, but they had protective elements like uh, they had like retaining walls or ditches, you know, to get the right kind of drainage or protection from the road against the elements. Oh, yeah. Drainage drainage is key and, and waterproofing. And this leads us to uh, the bitumen roads, which are pretty uh, pretty interesting page from the history of road technology. Uh, first, just a reminder on what bitumen is. Um, it's the word I can never remember how to pronounce the American way. I think we say it the British way, which is bitumen. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a mouthful, but it's uh, <laughs> it's also the, arguably the world's first petroleum product. It's a sticky black uh, viscous substance, mm-hmm. and uh, and when it's combined with uh, you know mixed with sand and stone, you get essentially asphalt. Uh, but it was highly prized in the ancient world, and for the longest, it was primarily a Mesopotamian monopoly, and it saw use in various endeavors, things everything from art and cosmetics cosmetics to just caulking your boat. Uh, didn't we talk about it on an episode of Stuff to Fill Your Mind as a potential constituent of Greek fire? We did, yes. And it also came up in an older episode on mummies. Uh, actually, the word the word mummy is linked to the word uh, bitumen. Uh, and then, of course, physicians in the, in the region uh, eventually used it to, to treat a number of ailments. But by 3000 BCE, it was used in mortar, uh, among other things. And by uh, 2500, it was used in waterproofing. And it was later used in roads along with burnt bricks. And around 615 BCE, uh, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his father, Nabopolassar, mentioned its use in streets paved for the procession of the great god Marduk. Oh, nothing less for the feet of Marduk. Yeah. But then this brings us back to the Roman roads, which we've already been touching on because the Roman roads are generally considered the peak of road making in the ancient world. Though one shouldn't dismiss the road making prowess of, say, the Persians and the Chinese before them, but Mm -hmm. still... This was an empire like famous for their roads. We have the, the saying, all roads lead to Rome for a reason. Now, as Lay points out, uh, Rome was, of course, an empire. And empires have a way of, of taking certain things, either culturally or technologically, uh, from, uh, from others, uh, either those who have come before or those who are brought in to the empire, right? So they made use of Greek lime cement and masonry, uh, Etruscan cement, uh, Carthaginian pavement, and Egyptian surveying. Uh, they famously utilized lime-based concrete as early as 509 BCE. And what's crazy is that after the, uh, the Roman Empire collapsed around 400 CE, concrete construction basically disappeared from Europe. And it yeah. didn't pop up again until roughly 1754. And that's when a gentleman by the name of William Smeaton, uh, <laughs> founder of uh, civil engineering in England, developed a mortar of limestone and clay that hardened underwater. All right, so we've we've kind of breezed through the history of roads here. Uh, again, Lay has a whole book on this, and it's a great read. So I, I recommend uh, anyone uh, check that out if you want a deeper dive. But this brings us to uh, the legacy of roads. It's really difficult to think about our world without roads in them because roads just crisscross everything. They can they can truly be seen from space. Even a few Roman roads and especially some desert highways really stand out against the, the surrounding uh, environment. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting how often um, 
roads and pathways have remained the same for so long or remained close to the same. It's one of the bridges between the technological civil infrastructure of the ancient world and the modern world. Yeah. Uh, the, the way in, in Europe, you still find so many of the Roman roads basically in use. Now, of course, one of the things about roads remaining in use is that you either have to build new roads over the old roads, mm. or you have to just maintain the roads you have, essentially continuously rebuilding them piece by piece in kind of a ship of Theseus uh, uh, manner, I suppose. Uh, and, in, and along these lines, um, uh, Scott Benjamin, who, uh, who does some, some research for this show, he, uh, he pointed us in the direction of a Midwest blog post uh, titled, How Much Does It Cost to Build a Mile of Road? with some interesting stats in it. Yeah, this is a, something I'd never really considered before. Yeah, because we see road maintenance going on all the time. And generally, our main reaction is, oh, this is annoying. Yeah. This is slowing me down. Get out of my way. So just consider these stats. Uh, these, these, are, these, are, these regard uh, uh, building the road, forging a new road, okay? To build a new two-lane undivided road in a rural area costs between 2 and $3 million per mile. And wow. in urban areas, that's going to go up to three and five million because you're going to have to deal with with because you know, of all the stuff you're going to have to go around, all the infrastructure you're going to have to deal with, et cetera. Yeah. Four lane highway, you're talking about uh, between four and six million in rural areas, and in suburban areas, uh, between eight and ten million uh, again per mile. The U.S. currently has somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty one million lane miles. And uh, to to mill and resurface a four-lane road, it costs an average of $1.25 million per mile. And if you're looking to do a four- to six-lane expansion on top of that, $4 million. Uh, sounds like we need to get into the road business. Well, in, in a way, it's a great a great business to be in, I guess, because the roads the roads are everywhere. Yeah. The roads are even the best roads are continually falling apart because they're weathered by all of these forces we've discussed, plus the, the intense traffic uh, traveling atop it. We're going to keep needing them. Yeah, and we also keep keep coming up with new twists on the concept. Now, one of my favorite uh, concepts regarding the future of roads is. Uh, is certainly a lofty one, uh, but one that is attractive in many ways. Uh, and it is the idea of an underground automated highway or UAH. Oh, like a subway? <laughs> Essentially, it's like the idea is we've we've kind of corrupted the world. We've, we've mm -hmm. divided up this, the natural world with all of these roads. And anytime animals try and cross it, they die and uh, it's breaking up forests, et cetera. But what if we were able to put all of those roads underground or in some cases, you know, build some sort of uh, green structure over it uh, and the animals could crawl over that, the, the, the vegetation could grow atop of it and there would, have all, there would be all of these uh, 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 environmental benefits as well. Yeah. What if we had this kind of uh, world, and then on top of that, the, you know, the cars are going to drive themselves as well? So imagine like those wildlife bridges, but it's not a bridge. It covers the entire road. Exactly, yeah. Just what if we just had nothing but wildlife bridges? And I, I, it is that kind of a beautiful nice. concept. And there have been some lovely uh, uh, you know, illustrations depicting what this kind of world would look like. And, and they, they do kind of line up with a lot of these you know, very, very ambitious and optimistic visions for what the future of, say, uh, you know, certainly like middle America, I guess, would look like. Uh, I mean, you could also certainly put the roads underneath uh, cities. Like everything becomes the subway in an urban environment. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I haven't looked recently to see what even the most optimistic time frame is for this sort of thing. But it's it's a lovely technological dream, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. I mean, to imagine cities where all of the surface space is for pedestrians or is green space. Yeah. Like, it's not even for pedestrian humans. It's for pedestrian deer and, and kangaroos and, 
And megafauna. Let's bring them back, too. And released crocodiles. Yeah. No, seriously, I I do like that. Uh, But until we get to that point, uh, we are stuck with the roads we have, which are pretty impressive technological feats. Yeah. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Invention. If you want to learn more about the show and check out other episodes, head on over to our website, inventionpod.com. Big thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance with this episode. Thanks to our audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, uh, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 